0: Chapter 4 Sentences comes first. Perhaps by now you have a general idea of what simplified language looks like and how people go about making themselves understood in conversation. Plain talk is mainly a question of language structure and of spacing your ideas now let's get down to work and learn how to do this we shall start with sentences for the simple reason that language consists of sentences most people would say offhand that language consists of words rather than sentences but that's looking at it the wrong way we do not speak By forming one sentence after another from words we have stocked somewhere back in our brains, we try to say what we have in mind and tell it in sentences. This obvious fact is confirmed by what we know about the language of primitive peoples where the issue is not confused by grammar and dictionary knowledge. Here is, for instance, what Frank C. Loback, the famous teacher of illiterates, tells about the Maranao language. Quote, When we tried to write the words we heard, nobody could tell us where one word began and another ended. If I asked Pambaya what is the Maranaw word for go, he did not know. But if I asked how to say, Where are you going? he answered at once, Anda Kasung. By many trials and errors we discovered that Anda was where, Ka was you, and Sung was go, where you go. Of course, English has advanced far beyond Marana. But the principle still holds that words are discovered by taking sentences apart, and that the units by which we express ideas are sentences rather than words. So to learn how to say things simply, we have to start by studying sentences. Now what is a sentence? Let's take our definition from Fowler's Dictionary of Modern English Usage. This is the most famous elbow book for English writers. Incidentally, it's fun to read. Quote, a sentence means a set of words complete in itself, having either expressed or understood in it a subject and a predicate and conveying a statement or question or command or exclamation. Follow Follower adds, and this is important, two sentences, not one, you commanded and I obeyed. Naturally, it would be two sentences if you wrote, you commanded, colon, I obeyed. Unquote. So you see that ordinarily a sentence expresses one thought and you need two sentences to express two thoughts. You can, however, work one sentence into another in place of a noun or adjective or adverb. It then becomes a clause and the other sentence a complex sentence. You can also work more idea ideas into a sentence by putting in more phrases or words every word you said into the framework of a sentence has to be fitted in into its pattern it has to be tied in with invisible strings in a simple sentence like man bites dog there is one string one such string between man and bites and another between bites and dog. And that's all there is to the sentence pattern. But if a sentence goes beyond the subject predicate object type, it is liable to become a net of crisscrossing strings that have to be unraveled before we can understand what it says. Take, for instance, this sentence from a recent book on Russia. Here is Edmund Burke, the eminent British liberal than than whom no European statesman was more horrified by the outrages of the French Revolution. As you see, the clause is tied to the main sentence by the word whom, from which an invisible string leads to Burke five words back. To reach whom, however, we have to jump over than which is in turn is tied to more horrified five words ahead in short the sentence is a tangled rather is a tangle and should have been revised to read no other european statesman was more horrified by the outrages of the french revolution than edmund burke the eminent british liberal Old-fashioned grammarians would point out that the main idea should never have been expressed in the subordinate clause, but that rule of thumb is pure superstition. The important thing is that the ties between, or rather within the sentence should not run in different directions, but straightforward so that the reader can read along. Here's a good example of what I mean from the theater section of The New Yorker. In an otherwise empty week, we might as well give the play our attention, if only as an almost perfect example of how a script of no conceivable merit manages to get cast, rehearsed and finally produced at some expense without anybody connected with it being aware that the whole enterprise is a violent and batty flight in the face of providence. In this case of course mr. Pally has put on his own work but it still seems incredible that nobody once took him aside and explained that even in these queer times there is no reliable metropolitan audience for amateur theatricals cut these sentences are not hard to read in spite of their complexity the trouble is you have to be a skillful writer to t- turn this trick. Ordinarily, a sentence will get tangled up as soon as you start filling it up with ideas. If you remember what I said in the last chapter about spacing ideas, you will understand that the best plan is to write short sentences so that the reader or listener gets enough chances for breathing spells and doesn't get caught in invisible strings between words. That sounds elementary, and you may wonder why you find so many long sentences in books, magazines, and newspapers. The explanation, to the best of my knowledge, is simply that those sentences are written not to make it easy for the reader, but to ensnare him, catch him like a fly on fly paper, or buttonhole him to attention. There are reasons for doing this, sometimes even good reasons. The most common place is the let me finish my sentence feeling of the raconteur, the storyteller who doesn't want to let go of his audience. Here's a simple example of a raconteur sentence from a story by Damon Runyon. Charlie takes the dice and turns into a little guy in a derby hat who is standing next to him, scrooching back so Charlie will not notice him. And Charlie lifts the derby hat off the little guy's head and rattles the dice in his hand and chucks them into the hat and goes, Ha! Like crapshooters always do when they are rolling the dice. End of excerpt. Such a sentence is very loosely tied together, besides it is really two sentences joined by and. If we want to disentangle it, we can rewrite it easily. Well, Charlie takes the dice. He turns to a little guy in the derby hat who is standing next to him, scrooching back so Charlie will not notice him. Charlie lifts the derby hat off the little guy's head, rattles the dice in his hand, chucks them into the hat and goes, Ha! Crapshooters always do that when they are rolling the dice. End of excerpt. Now listen to a charming literary raconteur, Alexander Wolcott. If this report were to be published in its own England, I would have to cross my fingers in a little foreword explaining that all the characters were fictitious. Which stern requirement of the British libel law would embarrass me slightly because none of the characters is fictitious and the story told to Catherine Cornell by Clementine Dane and by Catherine Cornell to me chronicles what to the best of my knowledge and belief actually befell a young English physician whom I shall call Alban Barak because that does not happen to be his name. End of excerpt. This is already more difficult to unravel, but here we go. If this report were to be published in its own England, I would have to cross my fingers in a little foreword explaining that all the characters were fictitious, and that stern requirement of the British libel law would embarrass me slightly because none of the characters is fictitious. The story was told by Clemens Dane to Catherine Cornell and by Catherine Cornell to me. It chronicles what, to the best of my knowledge and belief, actually befell a young English physician. I shall call him Alvin Barak, because that does not happen to be his name. End of excerpt. Similar in purpose to the raconteur sentence is the newspaper lead sentence. The reporter, following a hoary rule of journalism, tries to get everything important into the first sentence so that the reader, whose eyes happen to get caught by the headline, starts reading and cannot stop until he knows the gist of the story. The system gets the news down the reader's throat whether he wants it or not, but it makes newspaper reading a very unpleasant job. This is what you are likely to get with your breakfast. The Germans have completed a mine belt three miles wide along the west coast of Jutland in Denmark as part of their invasion defenses, and preparations to meet the Anglo-American onslaught from the west have been reviewed in Berlin, where Adolf Hitler and Field Marshal General Wilhelm Keitel, Chief of Staff of the Supreme Command, met Field Marshal General Karl von Rundstent, Commander of the Wemracht in France. End of excerpt. Or translated from tape's English into plain language. The Germans have completed a mine belt three miles wide along the west coast of Jutland in Denmark. This is a part of their invasion defenses. Adolf Hitler, Field Marshal General Wilhelm Keitel, Chief of Staff to the Supreme Command, and Field Marshal General Carl von Konstant, commander of the Wehrmacht in France, met in Berlin. They reviewed the preparations to meet the Anglo-American onslaught from the West. End of excerpt. Scientists eager to win their argument also often buttonhole the readers with long sentences. For instance, learning a language need not be dull if we fortify our efforts by scientific curiosity about the relative defects and merits of the language we are studying, about its relation to other languages which people speak, and about the social agencies which have affected its growth or about circumstances which have molded its character in the course of history. End of excerpt. Maybe the argument would sound even more convincing like this. Learning a language need not be dull. We can fortify fortify our efforts by certain scientific curiosity about the language we are studying. What are its relative effects and merits? How is it related to other languages people speak? What social agencies have affected its growth? What circumstances have molded its character in the course of history? End of excerpt. The most notorious long-sentence writers are the lawyers. The reason is again similar. They won't let the reader escape behind each interminable legal sentence. It seems to be the idea that all citizens will turn into criminals as soon as they find a loophole into the law. If a sentence ends before everything is said, they will stop reading right there and jump to the chance of breaking the law that follows after the period. Well, that's questionable psychological doctrine. What is certain is that legal language is hard even on lawyers. Here's a mild example. Sick leave shall be granted to employees when they are incapacitated for the performance of their duties by Sickness, injury, or pregnancy and confinement, or for medical, dental, or optical examination or treatment, or when a member of the immediate family of the employee is affected with an out- contagious disease and requires the care and attendance of the employee, or when, through the through exposure to contagious disease, the presence of the employee at his post of duty would jeopardize the health of others. end of excerpt now i cannot believe that sick leaves would greatly increase or decrease if this were formulated as follows employees shall be granted sick leaves for these four reasons number one they cannot work because of the sickness injury or pregnancy and confinement Number two, they need medical, dental, or optical treatment. Number three, a member of their immediate family is affected with a contagious disease and needs their care and attendance. Number four, their presence at their post of duty would jeopardize the health of others through exposure to contagious disease. Finally, long sentences can be used for artistic reasons, Marcel Proust, the great French writer, built his novels from never-ending sentences, with the effect that the reader feels magically transposed into a world of dreamy memories and intense feelings. This is a hard, rather this is a hard to describe, but you may want to taste just one sentence. But now, like a confirmed invalid, invalid whom. All of a sudden, a change of air and surroundings, or a new course of treatment, or as sometimes happens, an organic change in himself, spontaneous and unaccountable, seems to have so far recovered from his malady that he begins to envisage the possibility, hitherto beyond all hope, of starting to lead, and better late than never, a wholly different life. Swann found in himself in the memory of the pr- phrase that he had been he had heard in a certain other sonatas that he had made people play over to him to see whether he might not perhaps discover his phrase among them the presence of one of those in- invisible realities in which he had ceased to believe but to which as though the music had upon the moral barrenness from which he was suffering a sort of recreative influence. He was conscious, once again, of a desire, amount, indeed, or almost indeed, of the power to sacre- consecrate his life. End excerpt. I am not going to translate this sentence into simple prose first, because in cold print, this would look like an insult to Proust's memory, and second, because this will be an excellent exercise for you after you finish this chapter. I'm afraid it will keep you busy for a while.